0: Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. We do have some work ahead of us as we come to Romans chapter 2, so I thought I'd start with a lighthearted story about Ikea, which has featured from time to time in sermon illustrations. And it starts with a gift that I got for... Christmas a couple of years ago uh, from my dad. Sometimes a gift is better than you actually realize. uh, But uh, a couple of years ago, my dad gave me uh, what I think you describe as kind of a manual driver drill. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not a power drill. Uh, It's not a a screwdriver, but it's a, a manual kind of driver drill. It drives screws or bolts with more power uh, than just a, a, a screwdriver, but not too much power. And this is actually the killer app it proves for assembling Ikea furniture. Um, and if you've done this, you, you need to know about this. Uh, you can't borrow mine uh, because <laughs> I love it. But last <laughs> summer, last summer, our daughter, of her own accord, with uh, pure intent, innocence of heart, and her own money bought two Ikea dressers, over which she intended to loft her bed, and she wanted to build the dressers herself. Why, I'm not exactly sure. She uh, wanted, perhaps, to test her personal limits of frustration, uh, see where she was at in the spiritual growth process, Uh, But, you know, having played this IKEA game myself before, I handed her the driver drill, and I I launched into a dad lecture, you know, and and like all dad lectures, it was full of important information, Uh, you know, use this driver drill, you know, regular screwdriver, not enough power, Your dresser will fall apart, which means that your bed will come unlocked and and you'll die on the floor. So don't use the screwdriver because you have to, the dad's speech has to have some degree of severity in it, right? Otherwise, you won't be listened to. And so, so, you know, don't use the screwdriver, but also don't use the power drill. And all the people here who've ever assembled Ikea furniture with a power drill said, amen, because... You will strip out the screw head instantly and then you'll be stuck with a stripped out screw inside the dresser and and then your dresser will fall apart. Your bed will come and you'll die on the floor. So so you don't want to do that. And she smiled and nodded so unaware, so innocent. And uh, she cracked open the cartons. I went to work. I came over here. I, I waited for the tear-laden FaceTime call. You know, a text denouncing all things Swedish. Uh, it, it, it never came. I, I got home. She had both dressers up. And the, the driver drill sat serenely on the floor. I, I looked at it, This is like a miracle. I'm like, what happened? She held up an Allen key. She's like... No screwdriver necessary, so uh, no drill required. But I stand by my lesson, which is you have to use the right tool with the right power for the job at hand. And I say all of that to say this, that Paul says in Romans 1:16 that the gospel is the right tool with the right power for changing people, for saving people. Paul says, for I I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, Paul says, is the right tool for saving all kinds of people, Jewish people and Gentile people, Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish And the kind of power that God unleashes in the gospel is uh, described actually in verse 4 of chapter 1, if you have your Bible open, where he says that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That the kind of power that God unleashes in the gospel is, is resurrecting power. Last week, beginning in verse 18, Paul shows us why we need God to use such a powerful tool on our hearts. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I I suppose you could think of that verse a bit like a section heading, uh, that it is going to introduce how it is that people, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. That there are, I think, two principal ways that people do that. And we looked at one of those principal ways last week. But uh, the section from verse 19 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3 kind of show two Ways that people suppress the truth, and last week we looked at the first way, and I, I'm not going to go all the way through it, but uh, but the first way that people suppress the truth is by suppressing what God reveals about Himself in the natural world, and uh, you know Paul says, uh, building on what Scripture says in the Old Testament, that a person. Ought to be able to look at the natural world, the world that God created, and ask questions about a creator. Uh, It's what the theologians have come to call general revelation. That you can look at uh, uh, something as beautiful as, I don't know, whatever you find beautiful in nature. Perhaps it's a night sky. Perhaps it is a a mountain range. Perhaps it's an animal. Or supremely, uh, the person that you're sitting next to. uh, Because humans, are made in God's image and are the pinnacle of creation, uh, that you ought to be able to look at something in creation and at least ask, where did this come from? And what kind of creative power has generated this? And and asking that question ought to, in a truth, non-suppressive kind of way, cause us to ask questions about who God is. Now, there's not enough available in creation to identify that God the Creator is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who makes covenant and saves his people. For that, we need special revelation. Which brings us to the second problem that uh, we have to, to understand. And that is, as... Uh, as Paul lays out at the end of Romans 1 in that long list of uh, bad behaviors, of of truth-suppressing behaviors that I read, uh, that a person, a thoughtful listener, you might imagine, schooled in the teachings of the Old Testament, a person respectful of Scripture, a person looking at the first century world around him and her, might hear the end of chapter 1 read, you could imagine that There was some point in time when the letter to the Romans showed up, and it was read for the first time, right? And someone heard it for the first time, uh, that someone hearing the end of chapter 1 would hear the end of chapter 1 and think, yeah, those truth suppressors, those Gentiles, off the charts in their unrighteousness overriding the basic sense of right, not using, not using natural revelation, general revelation, the way it ought to. Overriding this basic sense of right and wrong. Man, they have got a day coming. Bad news. They, they not only do these things, but they give approval to those who practice them. And Paul, as you perhaps felt when we read the passage a few moments ago, so that if you even start feeling the inkling of the judgmental attitude starting, then you're being set up perfectly for the second way that people suppress truth. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The second way that humans suppress God's truth is to suppress the truth of God's special revelation, particularly by self-righteousness. And so he's going to lay out in this chapter kind of a, a fatal comparison, a flawed solution, and ultimately lead us to a singular hope. And, and that's what we need to consider this morning. Now, when we started the Roman series a couple weeks ago, I promised that I would step on everybody's toes, and I spent most of this week stepping on my toes, uh, and uh, probably if you feel your toes stepped on this morning, it's okay, because self-righteousness, as Paul as Paul explains it, reminded, reminds us so much of the conversations that Jesus had with the people of who he walked among, and just how dangerous it can be to think that we are righteous before God on the basis of our efforts. And particularly in comparison to others. Sets us up for a fatal comparison. Self-righteousness suppresses God's special revelation. So I, I thought to myself this week, when am I at my own self-righteous, my own most self-righteous? And then I thought to myself, When am I at my own most self-righteous that I can actually share at church? <laughs> it's a shorter list. I here, here's where I feel self-righteous. I'll set it up for you. I, I, about two weeks before every dental appointment, I begin a strict. Regime of flossing. <laughs> do you do this? Uh, and you know because you don't want to start just a couple days before because they can tell that you've just started, and so you you start with the flossing a couple weeks early. This is free advice too, and uh, you get to the chair and the hygienist is working on your teeth, and you know. Sometimes they'll say, and it's very rewarding when they say this, Oh, I see that you floss. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you know, some people, you know, usually your mouth is open, so you can't really, it's, ah. <laughs> and uh, they're like, You know, some people don't floss. And you're just thinking, all right, yeah, those non flossers, <laughs> they're just wrecks. <laughs> Not like me, I'm, I'm a flosser. I'm a self-righteous flosser judging non-flossers in my heart. Self-righteousness creates a fatal us-versus-them comparison. Us-versus-them, uh, which leaves, Paul says, hearts hard to the good news of the gospel. And there is a, a voice change that happens uh, when he moves from, verse, uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he moves from them to you. Uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, being aware when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Those are some harsh words, judgmental, hypocritical, hard, impenitent. Who are these people? Well, verses 17 to 24 clarify, I think, the you. They're those who've received God's law. In other words, from Paul's perspective, fellow Jewish people. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God... And know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well Paul knows how to diagnose self righteousness in part because he was a master practitioner of self righteousness before he was converted. If you just went through our new member class where we uh, use the book of Philippians as our primary source for the class, you'll perhaps remember Paul's biography where he reports that if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had the right pedigree. He had religiously conscientious parents. He followed a personally strict religious discipline. He put his faith into action, if you will, persecuting Christians. But it didn't get him what he needed. What he needed was to be right with God. And what he discovered is not anything less than what Jesus uh, warns in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that sin is an inside problem. Not an external behavior problem principally. Yes, it manifests an external behavior. But Jesus, just for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew, "...for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." And then Jesus applies the principle first to anger. "...you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment." But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, if Jesus is to be believed, and I think he is to be believed, we're killing each other all the time in our anger. Paul in Romans 2 is critiquing the self-righteousness of people who have access to God's special revelation, who, for all of the the privileges that come with it, fail to be led in humility to repentance. Thinking... uh, this week about the experience that the prophet Isaiah had when he comes into a moment of special revelation, when he has a vision of the heavenly throne room. And his response, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is a way that self-righteousness can suppress God's special revelation when having access to all that God says in Scripture does not drive us to the cross, doesn't drive us to repent, doesn't drive us to seek forgiveness. And I I think we'll all understand how religious congregations can become breeding grounds for self-righteousness. Because External performance is easier to evaluate than heart repentance. Obedience to God's commands is expected. Moral conduct is approved. Motivation is less observable. And hypocrisy exists because we're good hiders. But there's an irony. Uh, I was thinking about this irony this week and you can uh, decide if you agree or not. But one of the things that we read a lot about are are, are people deconstructing their Christian faith because of the hypocrisy that they discover in the church. You know, one of the principal arguments is is that the church is full of hypocrites. Well, it is true that both sincere Christians and hard-hearted, self-righteous persons uh, will sin. It's not hard to find sin in a congregation. There's a pretty good chance that the person sitting next to you is sitting next to a sinner. Hopefully a sinner who's repented of sin and is, is saved by grace. But for the, the, if the deconstructors, when, when you feel the pressure of what is observed as hypocrisy... Mm-hmm then don't you come into self-condemnation? Because the standard that God establishes uh, for righteousness is not the integrity of a person. The standard that God establishes for righteousness is His Word. So when we stand in condemnation of other people, whether it is the the sin and the folly of of a sincerely converted person which we come to observe, or whether it is the self-righteousness that we come to observe, then we just do the same things, right? Because the standard for righteousness is what God reveals in His law, and one of the main uses of the law is to show us our sin and that we need a Savior. It's never us versus them. It's always God and His Holiness critiquing humanity and our sinfulness. So self-righteousness sets up a a fatal comparison. I think it also introduces a a flawed solution. Uh, It's been a long time since I was in a math class, and then when our kids were going through school, I stopped being able to teach them math at about the fourth grade, so... Uh, I don't really know, but if you're in school, do you still have to do proofs? Like, is that do they still teach proofs? Like when you're learning algebra, I, I remember learning proofs and how you know you have to demonstrate your steps in solving a problem, and how very often I would get the problem wrong because of an error that I introduced in the first step, and then you you know you you do like the whole page. And the answer is, you know, the plane leaving New York never meets the plane leaving Los Angeles. They both circle aimlessly over Omaha in your problem. And you're like, ah, it's a trick question. (laughs) The the, the planes leaving never meet. They're circling Omaha. And the teacher's like, no, they're not. You you made a mistake in the first step. It's a a flawed solution. Well, self-righteousness, Paul says, introduces an error early into the how to be right with God equation a person could have access to special revelation from which he or she would learn of a God who enters into covenant with humanity he or she could read the opening pages of scripture could read of God's covenant with Adam could could see where Adam failed and then conclude well Adam failed but I'll try harder I'll obey God Adam sinned, Eve was deceived, I won't sin, I won't be deceived. The error is not that God's word or that his covenant is flawed, but that sin makes us powerless to keep the commandments. And the the, the flaw is fatal ultimately because God's judgment is fair. His fairness is part of his righteousness. Verses 6 to 11 of Romans 2. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, verses 7 and 10 are puzzling. If you feel puzzled, that's okay. It it puzzles the commentators as well. This made me feel a little bit more good while I studied. I actually felt a little (laughs) self-righteous. If if the smart folks can't figure it out, then I'm okay too. Self-righteous about their passage about self-righteousness. Here's the puzzle... Is Paul saying that if a person does well, God will give him or her eternal life? That God will impartially give glory and honor and peace to all who do good? That's the puzzle. Commentators debate possible answers, and they suggest two solutions. I think they're going to come up on the screen. There they are. Uh, In verses 7 and 10, one proposal is that obeying the truth means believing the gospel. So that Paul is describing a a new, obedient, converted person who seeks to live according to what God has revealed, who then is rewarded. Solution two is that Paul describes a real possibility that if a person does obey the truth, she'll be rewarded with eternal life. Which is it? Well, you, you tell me. Because both truths are taught in Scripture. But what's being taught here? Well, it makes more sense to me that what Paul is teaching here is that if a person obeys the truth, she will be rewarded with eternal life. And you're like, what? That seems to be different than what we've talked about every Sunday. But here's why. Paul has not yet talked about converted persons. He talks about converted persons later in the chapter. I think what Paul is doing is what um, the the authors of the Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian Confession, will call the covenant of works. He's describing God's covenant with Adam. And here is, I I think I gave you the uh, section from the Confession. But if not, in chapter 7 of the Confession the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. In other words, God gave Adam the law. If Adam obeyed the law, if he obeyed it perpetually, he would live perpetually and he would come into reward. That's the covenant of works. The problem is Explained in the next section, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace. The the problem is not with God's covenant. The problem is with the people. The, the, The problem is that we as descendants of Adam, we're that posterity that we're now powerless to keep this covenant of works. So so Paul is saying, basically, if you could live perfectly, you would come into what God promised. The, The problem is not what God promised. The problem is you. And I think that verse 12 and 13 bear this out. For all have sinned without the law. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, Gentiles who have the truth of general revelation will be judged accordingly, and then all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, the Jewish people who have the special revelation of Scripture, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. How many doers of the law who are justified can you name from the Bible? One. One one doer of the law who kept it perfectly, who was justified. Paul is saying that God's judgment is completely fair and that any kind of human self-reliance is going to bring us fairly before the bar of judgment to be pronounced guilty. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, they're not getting it perfectly right. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God's fair judgment precludes human self-reliance. And so you you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, and if you haven't paid any attention to the second point of the sermon, come on back and ask yourself this question. Uh, Is there any point in your heart where before God you're trying to leverage self-reliance? You're like, "Well, well, how would I do that? Are you comparing yourself to other people? Are you relying on the religious pedigree of your parents? Are you comfortable standing before the Lord who will judge the secrets of the hearts of all people prepared to argue before him that my parents believed in Jesus? No no self-reliance is going to win the day. But you see what Paul is doing. He's he's taking taking everything off the table that any person could rely on. He's, He's taking it away from the Gentiles and he's taking it away from the Jewish people. Why? Not because he's grumpy but because He wants us to marvel at the single solution, which is the hope for all humanity. And that is, regardless of how you or I are inclined to suppress truth, either by ignoring general revelation and pursuing idolatry headlong, or by suppressing the truth of special revelation, which is that I need a righteous Savior who's not me, and instead indulging in self-righteous comparison or in self-reliant effort, that that rather than relying on any of those paths, he says there is a single hope, and that is that God changes truth suppressors from the inside out. So we come now to verses 25 to 29. And I need you as I read these verses uh, to think of the word circumcision as shorthand for kind of, in quotes, ethnically Jewish. He's, he's, he's kind of shorthanding here. Verses 25 to 29 bring us from the hopelessness of self-righteousness and shows us that what self-righteousness and self-reliance can't achieve, God does. For circumcision, in other words, to his readers being ethnically Jewish, indeed is of value if you obey the law, But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And I I do think that the commentators are are right when they say here, obedience in this verse points to being brought to faith in the Messiah. If you obey the law, in other words, you trust in the Savior that God promised to provide. And this will become clear in verse 29. Being Jewish and a follower of Jesus has advantages, so to speak. One commentator put it this way, the Jewish believer has a head start in discipleship over the Gentile believer, possibly just, for example, in knowledge of the Scripture, possibly in a lifestyle of obedience that preceded conversion and which prevented bad choices and hard consequences. But there is no automatic ethnic advantage because the Christian from a Gentile background is counted among the people of God in a way that any believer from any background is not. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised, in other words, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, you might not have been born into the covenant community. But if you, even though you're not born into the community, become a believer, are you not counted as in the community? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So you might come to the end of verse 27 and think, well, how do I get out of this? I'm in this predicament. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His his praise is not from man but from God, he, he, he <laughs> just see where we're at time-wise, sorry. Um, he puts all of the good news in the last verse. Verse 29, that the Holy Spirit has the power. What kind of power? The same kind of power, verse 4, chapter 1, resurrecting power, bringing from death to life power that kind of power is able to work not just in Jesus, but in you. So whether your game is idolatry or self-righteousness, whatever your game is, there is a spirit who converts. And Paul is simply echoing Moses' farewell sermon uh, at the end of Deuteronomy. Where he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That you may live. So now we come to the the principal wonder of special revelation. The principal wonder of special revelation is not that we would build our own self-righteousness, but the principal wonder of special revelation is that we might know that in all of the universe, there is a God who is able by His Spirit to make dead hearts alive, to change you from the inside out, because you must be born again. Are you born again? Are you born again? This is how we live. This is what Paul wants us to know. How do we find praiseworthiness from God? By rejecting self-righteousness. By holding on to Jesus. Accepting that the Jesus made plain to us in the gospel is powerful to save us regardless of what kind of truth suppressor we are. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.